Stories of Communism 43, Through a Child's Eyes. Today we're going to talk about an unusual children's book targeted for a middle school audience, Breaking Stalin's Nose by Eugene Yelchin. I was happy to see that such a book exists. It seems these days most books in U.S. schools are coming from the opposite end of the political spectrum. It tells the story of two eventful days in the life of a young boy in Stalin's Soviet Union of the early 1950s. A historical novel, it's based on memories retold to Yelchin by friends and family during his own childhood, just a few years after the period featured in the novel. Zaychik is a young boy who lives with his father, a minor functionary who works for the secret police, in a communal apartment. He's excited that he's only a day away from being inducted in the Young Pioneers, a scout-like organization that only accepts loyal communist children into their ranks, and has been selected to lead the parade and carry the school's banner. As we hear in nearly every episode of this podcast, material poverty is inherent to the system, as we see when Zychik discusses his living situation. It's dinner time, so the kitchen is crowded. Forty-eight hard-working, honest Soviet citizens share the kitchen and single small toilet in our communal apartment. We live here as one large, happy family. We have no secrets. We know who gets up at what time, who eats what for dinner, and who said what in their rooms. Stalin says that sharing our living spaces teaches us to think as communist we instead of capitalist I. We agree. I take small bites of the carrot to make it last. The carrot is delicious. When hunger gnaws inside my belly, I tell myself that a future pioneer has to repress cravings for such unimportant matters as food. Communism is just over the horizon. Soon there will be plenty of food for everyone. I wonder what it's like in the capitalist countries. I wouldn't be surprised if children there had never even tasted a carrot. As you might expect, this kind of deprivation leads to jealousy and resentment among those who see their neighbors as slightly better off than they are. While Zychik and his father are not exactly living in luxury, many others have it much worse. In particular, there's major tension between his father and neighbor Stukachov. I wish he would leave us alone and go to his own room, even though I know how crammed it is in there with his wife, three little kids, and mother. My dad and I have a large room for the two of us. I'm so embarrassed we live in luxury that I don't look at Stukachov, but I know he's there. Then, suddenly, Zychik's life is turned upside down when his father is arrested. It turns out that this is the doing of Stukachov, who is next in line for their room. He doesn't even give the boy enough time to remove his belongings, immediately claiming his new residence after the father is taken. In the corridor stands our neighbor Stukachov. It's me, Stukachov. I made the report, he says, smiling and bobbing his head at the passing uniforms. Tomorrow they'll throw away our broken things. That doesn't matter, of course. My dad and I oppose personal property on principle. Personal property will disappear when communism comes, but still... Maybe I don't need a room. Maria Ivanova doesn't have a room. She lives in a cubbyhole next to the toilet. Semenov sleeps behind the curtain in the corridor, and nobody's complaining. I feel better already. I'm staying in the kitchen until my dad returns. He attempts to go to his uncle and aunt for help, but they have little interest in taking care of another child, especially one with the stigma of being the son of an enemy of the people. Zychik reminisces with them about the death of his mother, but it's pretty clear that some information's being withheld. Later we learn that his father actually turned her into the secret police for disloyalty, getting prestige for himself at the expense of her life. The next day, Zychik attempts to go to school as normal, still hoping he can march with the banner and become a young pioneer. On his way in, he has a minor scuffle with a classmate, Four Eyes Finkelstein, who ends up being late as a result. Everyone in the class feels free to mock and torment Finkelstein, since it's well known that his parents were arrested. 
When he arrives late to class, the teacher instructs the students to vote on whether to send him to the principal. Remember, children, the Soviet classroom is the most democratic in the world. You will decide his fate. You will vote. Those in favor of sending Finkelstein to the principal, raise your hands. Feeling a bit guilty, Zaychik refuses at first to vote for punishing Finkelstein, but the teacher quickly corrects him. We don't allow those who vote against the majority to handle the sacred banner. You're a smart boy, Zaychik. You understand. I raise my hand. Then further disaster strikes. As Zaychik is walking down the hallway fetching the sacred banner for the parade later, he bumps against the school statue of Stalin and accidentally knocks off the nose. The plaster dust sparkles in the muted window light before landing on the floor around the nose. I look at the broken nose. I look at the banner spread nearby. Then I look up at Stalin, now without a nose. It doesn't take much to know what'll happen next. The guards will arrive to arrest me. It won't be a mistake like with my dad. I should be arrested. I have become an enemy of the people, a wrecker. Who's going to believe me? Nobody saw how it happened. He quickly moves past the statue in hopes that nobody saw him, but a few minutes later the broken nose is spotted in the hallway. The school authorities see this as an anti-Soviet act, though they don't know who's responsible. The teacher starts pressuring the students to inform on each other in order to find the culprit. I'll make it easy for you. Write down the names of the pupils who you're sure didn't do it. Just make sure you are right. You know what will happen if even one name on your list turns out to be unreliable? You yourself will be suspected. We'll know that Zina Krivko is covering for the enemies of the people. Zaychik is saved when, inexplicably, Finkelstein confesses for the act. It soon dawns on him that his classmate is hoping to be sent to the prison where his parents are, foolishly believing they can be together again as a family. Of course, the teacher sees this as confirmation that no son of enemies of the people can be trusted. We should have known better than to permit Finkelstein to remain in our ranks after his parents were arrested. We have failed class, slackened in our vigilance, but this will not happen again. Nina Petrovna rises, walks to where the group photograph of our class hangs on the wall, and blackens Four Eyes' face with her ink pen. That's what we always do to pictures of enemies of the people, and it usually feels good, but not this time. Four Eyes is not an enemy, he just wanted to see his parents. Zaychik is soon summoned to the principal's office anyway, as the news has arrived that his father was arrested. He reflects on what's happened to another classmate, Vavka, who also had a father arrested. The principal then rubs salt in the wounds by lecturing Zaychik on how he should have acted after the arrest. When Vavka and I were friends, I went to his apartment hundreds of times. I liked his dad. He was a good Soviet citizen, modest, a devoted communist. How could he be a wrecker? It's just too confusing. Then I remember what my dad used to say, there's no smoke without a fire. If someone's arrested and executed, there must be a good reason for it. What about my dad, then? You, Zaychik, your father has been arrested and locked up. You think I didn't know? So why not come to me and say, Sergei Ivanich, I want to purify myself from the rotten influence of my father. I want to march with my school. Had you done that, Sergei Ivanich says, I would have let you denounce your father at today's Pioneers rally. But no, you chose to pretend that you're still one of us. Upset, the boy flees from the principal's office and hides in an unused part of the school. Out of fear and exhaustion, he faints and has a bizarre hallucinatory conversation with the statue's severed nose. Among other topics, it retells a dark joke that was popular in Stalin's day, though few could dare to tell it aloud. 
Once I received a delegation of workers from the provinces. When they left, I looked for my pipe but did not see it. I called the chairman of state security. Yes, comrade Stalin, I'll immediately take the proper measures. Ten minutes later, I pulled out a drawer in my desk and saw my pipe. I dialed the state security again. Nikolai Ivanich, my pipe's been found. What a shame, he said. All of the workers have already confessed. Finally, in the end, Zychik runs away from the school and decides to get in line at the prison to try and see his father. It'll be a long time until that happens, as he sees a gigantic queue in front of the prison doors, thousands of people lined up for multiple blocks. On that line, for the first time, he sees genuine human warmth and camaraderie not tainted by obsequiousness to authorities or constant fear. After a while, the woman in front of me turns around. You must be cold, she says. She stares at me for a moment, then digs into her bag and pulls out a woolen scarf. I made this for my son, she says. Wrap it around. I'll take it back when we get to the door. She doesn't even ask if I'm hungry, just takes out something wrapped in cloth and hands it to me. I unwrap it. A baked potato, still hot. Now that my son's cot is empty, you're welcome to it if you want. Uh, Breaking Stalin's nose. That sounds like a title that everybody wanted to use at that time. <laughs> yeah, though, uh, you couldn't have said that title out loud during the, the time period in the book, right? Well, secretly, they wish they could use it. But, um, yeah, very interesting story. In my opinion, it's, you know, one of those stories where the usual things we know about communism and socialism just keep reappearing again. You know, they promote poverty. They promote family division. They promote loyalty to government. And they promote separation and ratting out anyone who is not in line with their thinking. So I think it's nothing new. You know, we we just keep reading this this books and stories that bring up the same ideas no matter what country they are, they seem to follow the same the same recipe, all these governments and people in charge of government. Yeah. And of course they tend to use jokes and and find ways to ease the pain. Does they un, truly understand what's going on? Yeah, yeah. You know, what I thought was different about this book from some of the other ones we've read is just sort of the emphasis on the effect on interpersonal relations, right? Because, I mean, you think about how people treat their neighbors typically in, in a place like the U.S. I mean, you're probably not best friends with your neighbor, but would you condemn your neighbor to death or a lifetime of slavery in order to get 10 more square feet in your apartment? Um, probably not, but, you know, when it's that everybody is, clawing for those little bits of material possessions that they're allowed to have, it creates this kind of mass jealousy and competition for resources that, ironically, is unlike anything you see under the sort of dog-eat-dog capitalist system that they criticize. Yeah, it's almost like seeing a sinking boat with only a few life vests. Everybody's going to fight for uh, the last 
life vest in order to survive and and that just uh it's incredible yeah it's incredible to see the stories of how you know it it really the those systems really promote um uh, the families to rat out uh, even their own parents if they if they're not in line to whatever uh, they're trying to accomplish. So that is it's pretty pretty sad. Yeah, I mean the government is the universal parent to them, and, and you know even the boy is told by that principle that you know oh if you'd only separated yourself from your father the moment he was arrested and denounced him then maybe you would have had a chance. Yeah, you know the uh, part where it it really amazes me is because a lot of this fail governments or ideas, um, the only way to, to uh, keep people in line is to promote a lot of nationalism. And I can say that because uh, growing up when I was in elementary school, I was asked to carry the flag you know we would march as little kids in school and i was part of the six six uh, student team that paraded the flag and marched in front of the uh, while all the other kids were uh, uh, forming lines and watched this march in front of them and then usually one of the kids would come up and and say a poem to one of the presidents or one of the national leaders, you know, and uh, and so I even said several of those poems because uh, you want to be liked, you want to be given preference, and and I was the one that that uh, one of those six kids, and I was the one that was given the orders where it says you know four 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 four, and then left, and then you know I gave him when to turn, when to stop, and when to continue. And, you know, it was uh, it was something um, important because that's all you have. You don't have anything else. So you want those little, little moments and those little places where you can feel like you are uh, liked and you, you are part of something bigger. And I looked at this story here and just brings memories of how and now I look back to and I go like what were we doing out there in elementary school marching through the streets and around the school you know like little soldiers it just seems so crazy and and uh, uh, don't see the purpose I mean they never taught us how to do hygiene like clean our uh, brush our teeth or blo or floss our teeth or anything that would have been useful to us. Um, so I, in in looking over this book here, I you know I see a lot of similarities and a lot of keep a lot of uh, effort into keeping people busy to stay in line, you know, and to to follow the orders basically and follow whatever ideology they have. Uh, 
It's crazy. So this was in Mexico when you were little? This this, this was in Mexico, yeah. And I was surprised that they say they still do it. They don't do it to the same extent, but they still do it. And I can imagine, you know, a country where you can you can pay even a higher price when you don't participate. So this this story about this kids and, and families basically fighting for survival and and uh, uh, having to fall in line and and do as you're told. It's uh, it's very it brings uh, memories, but uh, it's a great story and. I, I'm glad you you found this book. I don't know where you find these books, but it is a great book for it would be good for young kids to read it too. Yeah, yeah. And so speaking of the whole falling in line thing, I think one other thing that stood out to me about this book was the form of voting they had in the class, right? We, we've hit stuff like this in a few previous episodes, right, where the teacher says, oh, this is the most democratic society in the world, so everybody vote. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> if you don't vote the right way, you're in big trouble. <laughs> yes. Uh, that I got a big laugh out of that, too, because one time I asked my uh, father here once we had moved to the states i said dad were you part of the party that was in power for over 70 years you know there's basically always cheating in order to stay in power and doing whatever they could and he just smiled at me and i said were you or not he says well i i never really voted but i had a card and and yes it was a card from the party because you kind of needed to have it otherwise we couldn't sell the animals so they they make sure that <laughs> they tell you you have the right to vote for whoever you want but uh there's a big price to pay if you don't so of course people tend to fall in line and i mean when you have uh when you have an opportunity to vote against something, but you're going to pay a high price, you know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one thing that I find kind of scary in terms of developments in the U.S. today is that we seem to be sort of starting down that same road, right, where there's certain issues where if you can't prove you voted the right way, you're in big trouble. Like, I don't know if you remember the story of that CEO in California a few years ago who was forced to step down after it was found that he personally donated a few bucks to an anti-gay marriage cause uh, instead of the pro-gay marriage one that everyone wanted him to support. Oh, yes. I I mean, I see it happening, and I'm very concerned about the the path we have taken here in the United States too, because um, when we first came here, I didn't even know what political parties people belong to, you know? Mm -hmm. People were kind of uh, letting their neighbors and their friends and other people vote any way they wanted to without being penalized. But nowadays, oh my goodness, you can't, it's even difficult to be in school anymore. The schools are kind of the same way here. Can you imagine if one of the kids in, I don't know, here in Oregon or California, say, 
was wearing a Donald Trump uh, shirt or something. <laughs> I mean, he probably yeah. would, that student would probably be mugged and, and, and harassed and thrown out. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. And, and I think, you know, books like this help us remind us what sort of the end game of that kind of thing is. You know, you start out by saying, you know, oh, well, these are things where the right side is obvious. And, you know, of course, everyone should agree on that. And then more and more <laughs> stuff gets added to that list of things you have to agree with until everybody's terrified to disagree with, you know, the exact statements of whoever the dominant politicians are at the moment. And, and then yeah, you end up with absolutely. societies like this. Absolutely. But, you know, the the bright part of the story in the book is that he ends with something positive. Here's a mother, she's another kid that is cold and probably hungry too. And she pulls out this blanket, makes him warm, gives him food without knowing the kid. So humans, they have a natural instinct to do the right thing, but I think it's uh, it's the people that are uh, trying to have power over the masses, the ones that corrupt things more than anyone. Yeah, yeah, I thought the other interesting part about that ending was that you saw people still had this natural instinct to help each other, but yet, whenever they were within the system, it was essentially suppressed, right? They were so dominated yeah. by political rules and jealousy and things like that. that the only woman who would, who would help Zajic was the one who was also outside the system, right? Because just like his father, her son had been arrested and was in jail, and that made them both sort of enemies to the communist state. So neither of them really had a stake in the system anymore, and so they could behave like human beings again. That is true. She had nothing to lose. She had lost everything already, which is a son. That's pretty much, he means pretty much everything to a mother. Yeah. And that, you, you're absolutely right about that. But it is a, a fascinating story because it, it, really shows that nothing big changes around the world. Everything seems to be uh, on path to, to accomplish the same things, which is a few people wanting to control the rest of the people, wherever they are, all over the world. And in some places more than others, but we we should be concerned about uh, what we have going on here locally, because it is it is uh, very concerning. We don't want to go in that in that route where where these people ended up. We we have a lot to lose. All the freedoms that we have been enjoying here are quickly disappearing, and they can completely disappear in our lifetime if we don't pay attention. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why we've got to keep telling these stories, even though a lot of people don't want to listen yet. I um, think more and more are realizing what we're risking by the path we're currently on. 
Yes, and I think uh, uh, shutting people down and and keeping people quiet or quieting people that express in different viewpoints or ideas is the first thing that they do so they can start controlling people and that's what's uh, what we see happening a lot and I'm just hoping that enough people see the danger from history because all these books are telling us what happened and if we want to go in that direction we can keep ignoring the value that we have here with our freedoms that we have enjoyed and I think uh, we have taken it for granted so uh, if you have any youngsters or even older people that can benefit from reading some of this material that was written by people that have lived through tough times I would do it share it we don't want to make the same mistakes if you enjoyed these excerpts and have a young reader in your life be sure to get them a copy of Breaking Stalin's Nose by Eugene Yelchin linked in the show notes at storiesofcommunism.com and this has been your story of communism for today